0: 7654321. You'll never have the sacred
1: stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy, mother.
0: Welcome to the Dead Pundits
1: Society. Now, here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome, everybody, to the latest installment of the Anti Essentialism series. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, we're currently between season one and season two. So we thought it was an opportune moment to bring you our anti-essentialism series that originally aired in the summer of 2017. But this time around, we're going to air it in a linear fashion so that we present the argument in a more coherent sort of way. Episode one featured a discussion about class, what it is and why it matters with Vivek Chibber. Episode two featured a discussion with Cedric Johnson. We talked about the legacy of Black Power, the Black Panther party and uh, the sort of aesthetic uh, transformation of black militancy into uh, today's elite driven class dominated form of race politics this episode is going to pick up that thread quite directly i'm going to bring you my interview with pascal robert we talked about what he calls the black misleadership class and particularly there what we emphasize is the way in which class still matters a great deal when we're talking not only about, uh, you know uh, rectifying racial injustice, but also talking about class differentiation within various racial groups themselves. A lot of the um, racial progressivism that has uh, you know been developed over the course of the last 150 years, as Pascal will reveal, has been driven by black elites. Uh, class is still important folks in this analysis and pascal is going to bring that to bear for us in this episode so enjoy that in the meantime if you've liked the anti-essentialism series and you want to support the new left agenda be sure to head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a member we need your support Uh, we can't do this without you let's keep this thing going and uh yeah until then enjoy my interview with pascal on the black misleadership class Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me, as I mentioned today on the line, is Pascal Robert. He is a writer, an essayist. Uh, he's a political commentator. You can find much of his work at Black Agenda Report, and he's got a blog that I'll link to in the show notes. Pascal, how you doing today?
0: Hey, what's going on, Adam? Good to, make, good to finally meet you and talk to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I could have you on the show. You are a, a prolific commentator, uh, you and I have uh, sort of agreed uh, with each other on social media on, on, a, on a, a bunch of matters rather lately and i wanted to bring you on the show because your 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 thoughts are very relevant to my summer anti-essentialism series so we're talking about race essentialism In class on this episode. So start off by telling my listeners a little bit about your background. Some of them may be familiar with you, but others may not.
0: No problem. Well, I was born and raised in New York City. My parents were uh, Haitian immigrants who left Haiti during the uh, Papadoc regime in the uh, mid to late 1960s. And my introduction to uh, radical politics really stems from my family background. As I mentioned to you earlier, my father had two of his uh, brothers, one older and one younger, who studied in the Soviet Union during the height of the 60s, 70s Cold War era. One studied physics, the other studied chemistry. And uh, the politics of my paternal family in Haiti is that they've always kind of been radical. As a matter of fact, during the election that elected uh, Francois Duvalier, my father's brothers and sisters were big supporters of Daniel Fignolet. Fignolet was kind of a Mm -hmm. socialist figure in Haiti at that time. And my my father's family came from kind of the upper middle class, uh, you know, uh, of a uh, Haitian society, but they had radical politics just because of the background and the way they were socialized as Haitian people and, and the way they grew up right, so right. so I
1: imagine Papa Doc uh, ran them out of the country more or less Well, it's really
0: fascinating because uh you know because of the stat my, my grandfather, my father's father was a truck driver in the early 20th century. Who uh, now you would argue well what's the big how does a truck driver travel driver become upper middle class in Haiti well when you own the only truck in Port-au-Prince it's pretty easy because that means all the major commercial class depends on you for business Hmm. so my my grandfather though he was more of a vocational elite or tradesman he had he, he interacted with all of the major commercial class people in Haitian society and was pretty much a very much respected individual in that social sector he had a very you know, nice, you know, upper middle class house in downtown Port-au-Prince when it was very, very attractive. He had, they had servants, they had maids, they had all of those things. So my grand, my father grew up in a very kind of comfortable. They were the first ones on the neighborhood to have a car. My father grew up driving a Land Rover. His father, his brothers wow. had motorcycles. They had a television before anyone else. So even though my my you know by American standards, my grandfather would have been like you know working class blue collar kind of guy. He was actually because the the, uh, the the economic market system in Haiti did not provide him a lot of competition as a truck driver. He basically was more as more of a small business owner because everyone depending on him for trade. And if you know anything about the economy in Haiti, it generally economically was controlled by an elite international oligarchy made of many Arabs, Syrians, and Europeans who had come to Haiti in the late nineteenth century, but basically acquired dominant market control of the economy of that country because of the comparative advantage they had coming from international locales and the general cultural affinity they had towards trade. So they basically became the economic elite that sadly parasitically controls the Haitian economy to this day. But because they were dependent on my grandfather, he basically lived not so much as a bourgeois, but as a very stable, petite bourgeois Uh, uh, Black man And my father's uh, If you know anything About Haitian society Class, color, politics Plays a lot of role there My father's family Was actually Very dark complexion Hmm. So what's fascinating About that is that They were dark skinned Haitians who had A certain level Of class standing but they had very radical politics, and even my grandfather himself didn't grow up poor because his 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 he was a beneficiary of his his grandfather, who was a man named wohammbobe and was was what we call in Haitian society a grand don. he was a man who had a large amount of property that he right. had inherited from his ancestors who were revolutionary gen- generals in the haitian revolution so my 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 paternal family comes from, in Haitian society, the kind of desalineal military grand class of black upper-middle-class Haitians. And there's a lot of that class. What I mean a lot, it's not a lot compared to the general population of Haiti. They're probably less than 10%. But the notion that the elite in Haiti are all kind of light-skinned and mulatto is actually a trope because the grandon class, those men who were the beneficiaries of inheriting land from their military general, uh, you know, family uh, Tended to have a certain amount of status in Haitian society, so there's a much more nuanced kind of class, color, race dynamic in Haitian society than you really are afforded in the United States. And my mother's family actually came from very non-radical uh, elites who were come from the more kind of mulatto elite kind of background, my mother's more fair complexion, but my mother's grandfather, my great-grandfather, was an Anglican assistant bishop in the Episcopal Church. And if you know anything about Haitian society in the early 20th century, the elites, if they didn't want to be Catholic and wanted to be Protestant, they would be Episcopal. So okay. my 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 mom's family can trace her lineage back to you know the 1700s. My father can trace his lineage back to the you know, the Haitian Revolution. So neither one of them came from particularly uh, suffering classes, and that's another trope we have about Haitian society that everyone is this kind of poor third world. This they, I wouldn't say it's a robust in size, but the quality of life that the upper middle class and, and these are not this, this is not the bourgeois. These are not the people who own the means of production. They're clearly petite bourgeois type. The black and mulatto petite bourgeois class in Haitian society lives better than probably upper middle class people in American society comparatively because they have such economic comparative advantage and control over social standing and status. So they have right, maids, right. servants and all of those oh, things. Yeah.
1: That seems to be the case in a lot of countries in South America and the Caribbean and and, and even in parts of, you know, uh, South and East Asia. You know, we like to I think maybe that's part of American exceptionalism, you know, we like to think that we're just better off than everybody else. Or maybe it's just kind of like a convenient ignorance that we have. You know, we have to believe that our system we suffer because our system is the best or whatever. So that's an interesting history. So, you know, Papa Doc Duvalier, but sort of for folks, uh, you know, who, who may be less uh Uh, knowledgeable about that era. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Papadoc and and what the implications of that were. Well, Francois
0: Duvalier or Papadoc Duvalier was the president of Haiti between 1957 and 1971. He was a dictator who was supported by the United States government, Mm -hmm. who basically uh, used a revanchist Dessalinian black nationalism. What do I mean by that? If you know anything about Haitian history, the actual founder of the Republican was Jean-Jacques Dessalines. And Jean-Jacques Dessalines was the founder of the, the, what was the black republic or the black nation of Haiti. And he actually, in the Constitution, said that all citizens, regardless of complexion, whether they be black, mulatto, or otherwise, were black. And the reason he did that was basically as an affront to the notions of the European colonial powers, who were basically degrading the notion of black people who were former slaves being able to rule themselves. So he he basically leveraged his racial identity to create a narrative to improve the self-esteem of his people to, under, to make them understand that we can create an empire. And he was unfortunately assassinated in 1806 by a, uh, a conspiracy of the mulatto and some of the black elite who didn't appreciate the fact that he wanted to do land reform and empower the peasant class of Haitians who had fought in the Haitian Revolution with land and power, which is something that Tess- Toussaint Louverture was not interested in doing. I'm also very big on people understanding that there's a misappropriation, or misunderstanding is a better word, of the Haitian Haitian history and looking at Toussaint Louverture as a father of some kind of black liberty. You have to really understand the nuances of the Haitian Revolution. First of all, most people don't know that 64% of the blacks who lived in Haiti at the time of the revolution were not born on the island. They were actually Africans who had been recently imported. Toussaint Louverture was a Creole who was born on the island, though he was black, those who were born on the island and black actually had a superior class status than hmm. what we call the pejoratively the Bosal. The Bosal were blacks who were brought as Africans to the island, but not born there. So there was a class tension even amongst black people, not including the mulattoes. The or you know, I know mulattoes are socially you know you know old school term. Uh, but that's the way we kind of describe them in Haiti. A lot of people like biracial. But there was a class tension even amongst the black uh, slave population because in the slave hierarchy, the Creoles had a higher status because they were more inured to the French culture, would speak French better, and they were not as Africanized. They may normally were Catholic, or, and they did not engage in the... Indigenous African religion of Voodoo and all that other stuff. So as a result, they had certain comparative advantage in class standing in the country. Mm-hmm. Toussaint Louverture's world view comes from the fact that he actually was an elite. Well before the Haitian Revolution, Toussaint Louverture was freed. He owned slaves. He engaged in in the slave trade. He was a very property elite. So his vision of black freedom was freedom for his compatriots who were Creoles who were blacks born on the island themselves. And this reality, this lack of understanding of the reality of the Haitian Revolution is what tends to have people uh, inure this idea of him as being his great liberator. First of all, one of the amazing things that people have to understand in Toussaint Louverture's constitution did not plan to give complete freedom from slave labor to slaves. He wanted to have the bossal or the slaves born in Africa work under the the land ownership of the... uh, of the Creoles and the Mulattoes in an indentured servitude kind of situation. Right, right, so he basically right. wanted to create a serfdom, which was a semi-slave, you know, you know, still with some of the same brutality as slavery. And one of the main reasons why, uh, basically, he... Was in a period in the revolution when uh, when Napoleon's military comes in with Leclerc and they bring their uh, their fifty thousand soldiers in. He's having difficulty getting the Bosal or the Africans born in Africa to fight for him because they do not want to fight under the auspices of his constitution. Mm -hmm. And what distinguishes Dessalines from Toussaint Louverture is that Dessalines was not interested in furthering any of the colonial enterprise. And what people have to understand is that Toussaint Louverture was not intent on fighting for an independent black republic. He wanted to rule a black-faced colony of France called Saint-Domingue, which is pre-revolutionary Haiti. But he just wanted to have the Creoles like himself, the blacks born on the island free, and then be able to engage in commerce. He wanted to re-invite the whites back. So this narrative of Toussaint Louverture being this great liberator is really skewed to those who don't know the nuance of the Haitian Revolution, and why Dessalines, who basically was a virulent oppos- opposer of the whites, he hated the French more than anything else. Not the whites in general, but the French, particularly, and when he got into power as the military general after Louverture was captured and sent back to sent to France, he massacred the French because he realized that their position as a, as as an existing force on the island would disturb the social infrastructure and the class standing because they would always have an advantage. Compounded with the fact that he realized that General Rochambeau, who was the French general at the time, wanted to engage in an extermination campaign against all the blacks as well. So Dessalines gets a bad rap because, like, oh, he killed all the whites. Number one, he didn't kill all the whites he killed all the French. And number two, he didn't kill the French women. He gave them the opportunity to live and own land. He did so because strategically it was a necessary way to neutralize their class competition and to preclude a a genocidal attempt by the French General Walsh to come back to Haiti and try to do the same to the blacks who had recently recently won the revolution. So he gets a very bad rap in the context of the way Europeans and whites look at him, but he actually is a hero of the Haitian revolution because he gave birth to Haiti as a country. The problem with Papadoc, to get back to Papadoc, is that Papadoc mm-hmm. basically lives and is raised during the American occupation of Haiti from 1915 to 1934. And during that time, the mulatto elite, who were many of the beneficiaries from the Haitian Revolution through their light-skinned or mixed-race background, landowners, had a lot of the wealth, were, were heavily class biased against the blacks and the dark skin population, who were the majority. In fact, there is a certain type of politics in French, it's called la politique de doubleur, which is how the, the, the light-skinned mulattoes maintain their power structure. What they would do is that they would get a black-faced figure who would, who would basically rise up to a point where he became president— under a racial narrative of he's going to support the black majority of the population, once he got, got in power, he completely acted as their puppet to the detriment of the black majority. And this type of trickery is how the mulattoes were able to maintain their power. It's called la politique de bleu. And I've made the argument to many people on social media that Barack Obama is nothing but an example of la politique de bleu being exported to the United States.
1: That's th- th- this is absolutely fascinating, Pascal. I mean, we talked a little bit before the show about the kind of outline we were going to have uh, for for what we were going to talk about, and I had no idea that you had this much to offer about Haitian history and politics. But 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 not only is it just interesting for its own sake. Uh, but it's also incredibly relevant to the type of observations that you make about uh, uh, American society and black politics, particularly the fact that, you know, you don't buy into this, um, you know, monolithic notion of a black uh, political constituency and you, you fully acknowledge uh, that there are st- uh, class and other status stratifications in the black community as there is in any community. And you, you just laid out very brilliantly about how that played out in a place like Haiti, where you have, you know, not even necessarily just whites, but mulattoes, right? P- people we call now like mixed or biracial uh, who have a comparative status or economic and political advantage.
0: And you also have blacks who have a different kind of status than blacks who were born in Africa.
1: Yeah. 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 Very interesting stuff. And so it forces you out, out of this kind of like, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, uh black, white false dichotomy exactly. that, that sort of runs exactly. the show here in the United States. So that's, that's, this really fascinating. So talk to me a little bit about, um, you have a striding critique of black nationalism. Uh, but, but, but as, as you mentioned, we mentioned off air, um, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but there is something sh- about the structural, <laughs> the structural exclusion of of black folks in the United States that does logically lead in the direction of nationalism. Even yes. if it might not be the most even if it might not be the most strategically apt thing to do. So maybe yeah. lay that lay that up. I
0: have us. what you would call a sympathetic contempt for black nationalism. First of all, I'm a former black nationalist. I grew up in New York in the eighties listening to Public Enemy in the time New York City is one of the most black nationalist cities in the country. Mm-hmm. You cannot escape black nationalism in New York City because of Harlem. You had the National Nation of Islam, Marcus mm-hmm. Garvey. You know, the, the politics of even even the black radio in New York is infused with black nationalism. So I I grew up very. I'm very much aware of the discourse, the rhetoric, and, and the and the the,
1: the 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 concept of black nationalism. So ex- explain explain that for us, because I want to be. I want to make. I want to. I don't want to assume too much knowledge for my listeners uh, right now. Uh, what what when you say black nationalism, you say okay when you listen to the radio that came through that kind of thing, like the aesthetic of black power and black nationalism. Maybe like spell that out for us. Get real specific.
0: Basically. B- Black, what what it is is that th- the the conversation on black radio in New York, when you have TV shows like Like It Is, is that black people are a nation unto themselves who are under siege from white people. Now, Mm -hmm. you would understand that that's a logical conclusion based on the racial dynamics of this country. But there's one simple problem, and this is why my problem with black nationalism doesn't extend outside the borders of the U.S. when you have a nation state. Black people don't have dominion and control of any land to call themselves a nation. You know, the, my main mm-hmm. critique of black nationalism is it creates a false political reality in the consciousness of the black community that they actually have a corporate body of that they that they have dominion and control over in terms of the resource allocation like a nation. If you are a mm-hmm. nationalist, if you're a Haitian nationalist or a Nigerian nationalist or a S- Senegalese nationalist, it makes sense because you have dominion and control over a nation state for you mm-hmm. to infuse a certain type of patriotism within that state. But the problem that creates this this, psycho- this, this, this psychological problem in terms of black nationalism for the African American community, is that they have never been able to maintain dominion control of their own land to create a nation state. So as a result, politically referring to themselves as in that way only lends itself to collective race management by the white elite by their own class traders in the black community. So mm-hmm. their desire, black people's desire in America for their own kind of national autonomy and, and sovereignty and 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 and, uh, and abilities. Rule their affairs actually lends itself to the capacity to have a class of elites among them to act as a buffer class to rule under the advisement of the ruling class to the detriment of the black majority.
1: Mm-hmm. So let me back up here because you talk about the 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 uh, impossibility of having a sort of a national project without land and power. Now this goes back to a lot of folks won't be familiar with this. Some will, but. The American Colonization Society was founded in 1816. It's good history, uh,
0: Adam Hall. i I'm Yeah, yeah.
1: I studied this stuff. I, I, I was in the archives all summer down in Duke uh, reading and in, in uh, D.C. looking at the papers of this this organization. And this this obviously predated emancipation in 1816. And uh, it was founded by, you know, these good-natured white folks, a lot of um, abolitionists and ministers and so on and so forth uh, from the Northeast – uh, in, the, in the United States who, who wanted to assist free black folks in immigrating to Africa. And they founded a colony essentially and known as Liberia right. at the time. Uh, that was one of the arguments. One of the other arguments was, well, we can just, because, you know, we didn't care about uh, uh, folks who, who lived in Mexico at the time. We were just, uh, you know, uh, pillaging them as well during that time. Uh, we thought, well, hell, their, their land isn't important. We'll just push all the free black folks down there. So that was another option. Another option was just shove them all down into Central and South America. And the other option was export them in their own colony. Some of them Vietnam. wanted to send them to Haiti as
0: a matter of or sense. Haiti.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Uh, because Haiti was a threat at that time to, to Always a, has a, been. A, a slave slaveholders. Yeah, absolutely. Slaveholders since since day one. Brazil and the United States were terrified of Haiti uh, for that purpose. So so. I guess my question is, what, what's the legacy there? I mean, it seems like the Black Nationalist Project owes a lot of its origins to this really uh, reactionary American colonization movement, which is trying to— Export uh, black uh, free black slaves uh, and, and, and former slaves to, to
0: well. Africa. What's even a more insidious uh, 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 reality is that the cor- the, co- the connection between the American colon- Colonization Society's project and the birth of Pan Africanism in the United States. Pan Africanism really kind of has a dual a uh, dual history. It, in, in the Caribbean, there was an attempt to start a Pan Africanist movement in the late 19th century as a reaction to the Victorian era era reconquering of the African continent with the uh, the British conference and all that stuff. But in the United States, Pan-Africanist rhetoric was being started. All of this as a result of one thing that I I would say, according to probably, I think the greatest scholar of the history of black nationalism is Wilson Jeremiah Moses in his book, the golden age of black nationalism does a very good job of documenting how this philosophy comes about. Black nationalism is a reaction to the fugitive slave act because what happened is that when the fugitive slave act was passed in 1850, Free men of color, like uh, you know, uh, not like the not like uh, Frederick Douglass, who had been a slave. But the thing that's ironic about Black nationalism is that many of its actual most st- strident advocates, you know, were black men who had never been slaves. You know, they basically were free people of color who were threatened by the notion that they could be, you know, un- after the Fugitive Slave Act is passed, which was a law that made any slave that escaped to the north could be dragged back in shackles through the mandate of law. That they, oftentimes, which happened because this was a part of what called black caused black abolitionists as well, they could be dragged back into shackles. So the fear of that possibility caused black people to circle the wagons and basically. Uh, Martin Delaney is one of the major for, for you know for ideological or, or originators of black nationalism. And these these men were not slaves. They were black elites who hmm as a result of the reaction of the fear of white racism, felt that black people need to come together and create their own sense of national autonomy. And one of the ways, the strategies that was suggested was to to leave to go to Africa and found the colony of Liberia, which many of them did. So one of my critiques of black nationalism is it's fundamentally reactionary in nature, in that its whole intellectual origins as a project is in reaction to white racism. It's not a proactive political formulation that comes out of a national strategic, nat- a natural strategic uh, ideology in the black community, but it's reacting to white racism, which is actually one of the arguments that I think is part of the problems with black politics: is that it's always in this reactive mode, reacting to white racism instead of proactively trying to develop a strategy of how to escape the economic reality that I think is more pressing to black people, which is capitalism. So. Black nationalism comes is 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 in its origins a black it's an elite project it's a, it's started by men of letters who were not slaves who were free even before before uh, 1863 and the whole notion is that we have to find a safe haven for ourselves because of the Fugitive Slave Act, which eventually leads to the civil war and you know, Delaney actually ends up going fighting in the civil war. And it's funny how his desire to leave depends on how much status he gets as a general, in the, so as a, as a military officer in the civil war. So, part of the problem I have with black nationalism is that it's, it's an ideology that doesn't even come from the political aspirations of the majority of black people at that time. It was mm-hmm. even framed by black elites at that time, barring the aberration of, of, uh, of uh, David Walker. Now David Walker was a figure in African American history in the early 1800s who wrote a very, very, I consider him one of the first black revolutionary pieces of writing in, the, in American history, uh, David Walker's appeal to the colored people, basically asking black people to take up arms and to fight slavery wherever they stand. It's a very revolutionary document, and he uses certain nationalistic discourse in it, and many black nationalists like to say that he's the first black nationalist. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but you can make the argument that he did view black people as one corporate body. But the real origin. Origins of the formulation of viewing, and and Jeremiah Moses does not really consider, uh, doesn't talk about David Walker in his book as as the father of black nationalism. When you talk about black nationalism, you're talking about Martin Delaney, and you're talking about these black men who basically, as I said, were elites who were free people of color, who were reacting to the fact that their status was being threatened. And they formulated a posture of repatriation back to Africa that structure, that basically became a project of black nationhood within the United States as a reaction to that fear. Much of their project was based on what I call uh, the politics of redemption. They needed to prove to white people that they could do things. So Escaping to Africa wasn't even about finding a safe haven. It was about we need to create our own African nation state to prove to white people that we are worthy of equal treatment. So, part of the problem I actually, again, have with the Black Nationalist Project is a lot of the rhetoric and discourse is based on an assumption of 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 black defectiveness or deficiency there's an essentialized notion that black men and black people are not whole because we have not proven to pe- black to to white folk that we deserve to be to be, to be respected. This kind of rhetoric is existent even in the nation of Islam, Marcus Garvey. It's a strain that's persistent throughout black nationalism. This kind of black people are defective. And one of the things I resent about black nationalism is that it often takes this rhetorical posture that there's something defectively wrong with black people. I do not believe mm-hmm. there's something defective with black people. I think that black people are disproportionately denied of resources because their race is used as a way to obscure the white majority that they also suffer from capitalism to make them think that only black people suffer from poverty.
1: Now let's talk a little bit about something that's hot on on, on the the socialist left right now, primarily because of R.L. Stevens, and that's his critique uh, that's appeared in uh, Jacobin and Viewpoint magazine uh, over the past couple of months. That he's talked on, uh, he's done the podcast circuit about that, and he, he talks about how uh, Afro pessimism uh, comes around. Of course, this is a later development.
0: God, I hate. I, I think I'm probably. I I think I'm one of the few people who hate Afro pessimism more than R.L. Stevens.
1: <laughs> so you're the you're the you're the person to talk about then, because uh, you know this a lot of this black nationalism. To, to be honest with you, I don't think a lot of white leftists really have a good conception of like say nation of Islam and 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 other kinds of more like revanchist reactionary black nationalism. Uh, it's something that they might see a video on, you know, catch it on the news feed every now and then, but they don't really have the context to judge it. It just looks like a respectable. A young, young man wearing a tie, right? You know, talking about how you need to shower every day and and present yourself nicely. And, and, you know, that sounds okay, I guess. Right. But if you don't understand, you know, where it's coming from, uh, you might think it's more benign. Uh, Or maybe even a good thing. Well,
0: the thing is that one of the the things that's very important, and this I I suggest if you want to get, I don't think there's a book that will give you a better understanding of the original formations of black nationalism than this book, The Golden Age of Black Nationalism, 1850 to 1925 by Wilson Jeremiah Moses, because it explains the vacuum in which this thing is born. Black nationalism is innately regressive, in my opinion, because it's not a progress. It's not a revolutionary project. It's a conservative project because it, it it demands that the problem with black people is in within themselves. It doesn't understand that black people are a product of the way capitalism enslaves them. And this is why there's a strong combination between black nationalism and capitalism. I.e., mm-hmm. Marcus Garvey. I.e., the NOI. These guys but, do not challenge capitalism. They have no if problem. If you purify
1: with yourself, if you purify yourself, yeah, you, purify you can find your, prosperity. Yeah, exactly. You can find success. Exactly. And so that, that jives well with the prosperity gospel that you find in a lot of churches exactly. across the country. I
0: mean, I, see, this is the thing. There are different forms of black nationalism. There is the classical kind of uh, masculinist, kind of Garveyite, NOI- uh, 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 type of uh, black nationalism, and there's also petite bourgeois black nationalism. Du Bois is a petite bourgeois black nationalism. The talented 10th theory of collective race uplift, which is is which is, is a, a horrid name in itself, the concept of uplift, that just because you have a college education, you have to bring your lowers up to your level because you are the one that has been inured with the, the role of carrying the race on your back. It's elitist off the bay,
1: the back. That's also the way the, the, the racist Southerners talk too. By the way, yeah. Know, so maybe we should change our discourse up. We don't want to be talking like uh, you know the racist South. Well, this uh, is in, a strong. I mean, I would argue era. that th- that petit bourgeois <laughs> black nationalism is the actual
0: default political posture of most black people today, particularly college-educated black elites. They have no. I mean. The, the language of racial uplift is considered a, 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 a good thing to them that we have to uplift the race uplift them all yeah I mean, by the grace of God and affirmative action you are in college what makes you who are you to uplift anybody? Mm.
1: It also says more it th- that that claim it says way less about society and the world you want to live in as it does uh, it, 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 it's 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 all about them right because what that what that signifies is that I'm the one. Who's supposed to uplift these people? So therefore, I am the the, the social better. Um, it gives you a sense of status and, you know. Well, the, the thing community.
0: that you know, I, I, what I'm trying to convey to you is that this is the way, hands down, most uh, most black people in America view themselves. Whenever you hear people say us people, we people, our people, my people, politics, they're black nationalists. Hmm. We, Whenever you hear black folks say we as a people, that's a black nationalist. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and what what and I mean, it's it's it is organic in that it's not something that white people created. It is an organic formulation, a political formulation of default posture in the black community. But it's completely reactionary, not only in terms of its a conservative nature and tone, but it's, 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 it's antagonistic to progress because it leverages your whole ability to get liberation if you believe that we are still quote-unquote oppressed as slaves, because I don't think black people are slaves anymore. If you're, mm-hmm. it, it, it leverages on proving something to white people. It's, 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 it's fundamental. I wrote a piece, one of the pieces that I'm actually the proudest of is a piece called The Politics of Redemption. And the whole premise of the piece is that one of the reasons we get Barack Obama is because we believe that he is a good way for black people to be redeemed to white folk that look, we have a president who can take care and manage your empire better than you can with a nice black wife. He ain't got no babies out of wedlock. He's wonderful. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous because the whole concept is based on a notion of black folk have low self-esteem. And we got to prove to white folk that we're human. And it sets up this kind of irrational trap because you have already acquiesced that white people are the barometer by which your humanity is judged.
1: Right, right. And it, this, i got to tell you, I love this critique because um, I'll link to that article in the show notes. It was on Huffington Post uh, several years ago, and it's really good. The video that's embedded in there, you did an interview based on that with uh, Yvette Carnell, uh, it was which is just fire. Uh that was one of the first videos I saw of you. So I'll link to that in the show notes. But but that critique jives very well with my criticism of what I call a uh, 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 revolutionary pressure politics, because, like, for example, we have these big marches, you know, in D.C. every other every other month, you know, nowadays. And, and people, you know, have these radical revolutionary slogans. And that's great. It feels good. It looks good. You know, good press comes from a good, good revolutionary, radical pictures and slogans and, and everybody gets their warm and fuzzies. But the whole success or failure of that sort of depends on uh, whether or not you put uh, pressure on those who are in power or not. Right. It's 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 a it totally rises and falls on whether or not you can convince uh, the power brokers that they ought to do something about this this particular problem. Um, And I know there's a lot of other base building and other kind of things that go on at these kinds of marches. But but it seems like you have a similar pressure politics uh, criticism there.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, again, I mean, one of the constant problems of this whole black nationalist formulation is that it it renders black people as a position of actually asking white folk for something to fix them, as opposed to demanding policy that changes the country. And this is one of the main reasons I have a problem with this notion of disparity studies, because what it does is that it makes the concept of coalition politics with whites who are similarly situated in class uh, obsolete because it creates this idea, like whiteness studies does, that white people don't suffer from capitalism, which fits the exact purpose of racism. Racism in America is a tool to make white people think that they don't suffer from capitalism because only those Negroes are the ones who have the problem. So once you start creating a paradigm with disparity studies that tells you that all white people are privileged even though they're sucking up on, on, you know, on alcohol and heroin and dying through, like, like flies all over the country, then basically it denies the ability to have a coalition between two groups of people who are also being disparaged by capitalists, capitalism even though blacks are largely being suffered more because of the way race uses them challenging mm-hmm. the system, which, by the way, is not, the thing that the power elite in this country have always been more afraid of. Going back to Bacon's Rebellion, is poor black people and poor white people coming together to challenge capitalism. That's why they killed Fred Hampton. That's why they they (laughs) needed Booker T. Washington to uh, to shut down the progressive era with the Colored Farmers Alliance and the Farmers Alliance. And it it is and what this type of discourse and by the way, black elites are always or traditionally oftentimes used as co-conspirators in shutting down those coalition politics because if you understand how the race management paradigm is necessary to maintain uh, the oppression of black people for the Purposes of capitalism, the black elite need racism to make their brokerage to white people necessary. So, if you have a black-white coalition that challenges capitalism effectively, their utility to the ruling class is challenged, and they can't get their patronage.
1: Um, hey, there's a, a lot. Folks should look into this. There's a long history of this. There's the Wilmington Riot. Uh, it happened in the late 1800s, and it was well, there was a fusion government that came into power in Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, the fusion government at that time, all, most of Republicans in the South were black. It was Repu- Republicans within the party of Abraham Lincoln, and uh, there were some populists who were primarily white agrarian populists, and and they got together the populists and the Republicans into in formed a fusion government in the in the city of Wilmington at that time. This is a part thriving of thriving this, this is cities. a very
0: important part of history that most people don't know anything yeah. about.
1: They have no idea, and I spent this summer digging the archives, and I and I, I'm looking at letters. So, long story short, people should look this up: the Wilmington Riot of the late 1800s, 1896 or seven, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And you know, long story short, is the white folks, uh, the business leaders, uh, the petty bourgeois white supremacists who relied on the you know uh, the domination of the free slaves and 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 the poor whites, uh, basically staged a coup. Uh, ran out the elected black officers And, the, and the, the white populace Ran them out of town or killed them And uh, there was a gun battle and, and by that I mean a massacre Multiple people were killed And uh, you know, the, the, the white racist Democrats In that time took power back And nobody you know, sort of flinched at it So you can see what happens When the, the poor whites and, and the black folks get together um, it's, it's a huge threat To the status quo um, in, in American history
0: absolutely absolutely that's that's the I mean, like I said going back to bacon's rebellion even before America was a country of itself, the whole concept of white identity, which uh I forgot the name of the brother who has the who wrote the book, it's a very good book on um the uh, um it's like the origins of whiteness. In America. Theodore Allen. Theodore Allen, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Theodore (laughs) Allen basically explains how whiteness is created in the United States (laughs) as a reaction to an interracial coalition between blacks and whites in Bacon's Rebellion to basically have poor whites believe that they have some type of advantage over black Mm -hmm. slaves and uh, avoid them from challenging capitalism. And it's it's always fascinating to me that the black people in in my social media timeline who are always the most like literally viscerally opposed to interracial coalition there's a piece today in the root talking about bernie sanders white women's pro- black black women's problem that talks about how oh, bernie sanders is appealing to those white people you know the ones who the ones who who, who voted for that you know segregationism uh, ta- uh donald trump again you know by the way the root is a totally elite henry Louis gates provocation owned by uh Uh, what is that, the the, the international media company now? Well, it used to be owned by the Washington Post, but I forget who owns it now. But, uh, hear these college-educated Negroes crying about the fact that Bernie Sanders is reaching out to black people, Latinos, and poor white people is classical in terms of how elite blacks who are given authority or ability to neutralize interracial coalition. I mean, why do you think you have Joanne Reed uh, 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 and all of these other black media figures trying to destroy Sanders before he gets out of the gate? And I wasn't a Sanders guy because I'm an anti-imperialist and I think that Sanders has no critique of imperialism at all. But the bottom line is that Sanders appealed to, to the possibility of saying that we want to challenge capitalism and bring in democratic socialism, which Malcolm X died fighting for, which Martin Luther King died fighting mm-hmm. for. All of a sudden, now you have the black media elite, which is nothing but the arm of the black misleadership class, which we at Black and Report refer to the black political class that misleads the black community into advocating for policy that works to its disadvantage, now saying that Sanders is a racist. A man who marched with King is a racist when Hillary was basically saying that black children are super predators. It's Comical, And this is how this is right, how right. black politics works. This is how black elites shape black politics to to create paradigms that work to the disadvantages of the black community to protect that patronage position.
1: That's absolutely. I mean, this is this is fire stuff here. We're talking about, um, you know, uh, we're talking about essentially anti-racist leftists doing the work of racism uh, for the racists by keeping folks. Uh, separate. So I want to get back to the racial disparity narrative because I recently fired off a post uh, that went viral on Facebook. I sort of was just kind of it was like, you know, t- one at one o'clock in the morning, one night. And I was reading Kiangi Yamada Taylor's book on uh, Black Lives Matter. And she fires off a whole host uh, page after page of racial disparity statistics. You know, uh, black folks in this country, in this state are, are you know, 35 percent. Poverty, white folks, you know, this. And so the whole point of racial disparity, whether it's poverty, whether it's, uh, you know, unemployment, underemployment, whether it's uh, wealth, whether it's health outcomes, all these types of things. The point is to kind of a uh, try to demonstrate that there is a racial disparity. Right. To try to demonstrate that there demonstrate that there is something that goes by the name structural racism in the sociological data, uh, which it does successfully. And anybody would be a fool or just a fucking or a racist <laughs> to deny that across the board the legacy of slavery and jim crow and all types of other exclusions and and the static nature of wealth transfer across generations uh, has led to a widespread racial inequality but the problem with these statistics is that they never take class into the context so you have a strident critique of racial disparity statistics, so maybe lay that on us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that. First of all, racial disparities. I, I have never met a black person in my life who was shocked that black people have a lot more, a lot less wealth than white people. I mean, I asked this question all the time. I said, listen, 60% of black labor until 1960 in this country were either sharecroppers or domestic workers. Why are we shocked that 60, like in, in 2017, that black people have a huge, massive wealth gap to white folk? What is shocking about this? Is it unjust? It's uh, Of course it's unjust if you assume that we don't live in a capitalist society that was based on racial stratification. But the problem, the problem I have with with disparity studies is, first of all, it's very simple to explain why that reality is. First of all, for example, when you use a statistic like that, that means, you you know... Black black people were denied the ability to accumulate wealth generationally. Of course, there's a disparity problem. And number two, it's a direct reaction to the fact that the subprime mortgage crisis stripped black people of 50% of their wealth. And now is the time, instead of having blacks and whites come together to challenge capitalism because whites are suffering all over the country. Now, to the point where you have the National Review saying, damn, these white poor people, they're so lazy. I've never heard a white white reactionary right-wing publication disparage poor white people, which they normally needed as their support, political support structure. Right, so what right, that right. means is that basically American capitalism is in crisis, but instead of creating statistics to show how everyone is suffering from it, make it seem like oh, it's those Negroes who are poor again. Look how much less money they have to us who benefited from the New Deal, have had wealth generationally, and basically this system was was created for as a white settler colonial project. Isn't this horrible? we got to do something for these Negroes. Let's give them some patronism fatback that's going to increase a greater Disparity between the blacks and themselves, and the poor blacks and the rich blacks, anyway, and also not challenge capitalism, which is what, what I mean when you when you leverage disparity studies to the white power structure. What are they going to give you? They're going to give you they're going to give you what I call biscuits and fatback. They're going to give you Mickey Mouse policy that doesn't challenge the status quo that's going to be managed by elite Negroes that they're going to pocket mostly for themselves and increase greater disparities between rich blacks and poor
1: blacks. Right. Very very well said. That's fire stuff, man. Uh, you know, I think. Look, I mean, the, what, what, the, the kind of, I was being kind of slick here, but what I said in, in my post, and, and maybe I'll post this somewhere publicly so people can read it for themselves, is I said, if our theory and our strategy is supposed to be intersectional, how come our statistics aren't intersectional? Because, I mean, you know, there are a hell of a lot of white sharecroppers uh, poor, poor as hell, too.
0: People fail to realize that Plessy versus Ferguson not only only disempowered poor blacks, it disempowered non-landowning whites who also couldn't read. They were being affected by the by the the grandfather clauses and the
1: reading requirements as well. Mm -hmm. So the question there is, unless you're just trying to score points or uh, produce a lot of white guilt so we can usher in these, you know, shitty Democratic uh, liberal policies. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe tax breaks for black folks or something like that, right? Like, whatever it is that Hillary Clinton might have in mind. Well, what what the
0: argument is being used to do is to Carry on the back of what Ta-Nehisi Coates did in his his, his comical in his, his in his you know piece that talk about you know reparations his his call for reparations during a black president who's governing the country where black child poverty goes to thirty eight percent you're crying for reparations now why because your black president love project is falling apart because negroes are suffering in a way worse than they have in forty five years.
1: So let's tu- let's turn there because a lot of the racial disparity has a ne- has a natural outcome. You might even argue that uh, the the reparation style, uh, you know, uh, argument the the pro capitalist reparation style argument sort of has uh, racial disparity politics that you know as, as its built in uh, justification. Uh, because it doesn't seem to address the poverty and inequality, uh, you know, that happens in, in, in other uh, racial, uh, you know, backgrounds.
0: And by the way, let's make this clear: the top ten percent of black families own seventy percent of black wealth. The top ten percent of white families own. 51% of black wealth. If there's any way to further guarantee the disparities within the black community gets worse, but we have these elite Negroes who are able to maintain their positions as brokers, is to have disparities-based policy to try to rep, to, to, to redress the issues of the African-American poor so that, again, the elites are the ones handing out, doling out the fat back and biscuits, and the black poor get the shaft again, which is exactly what happened in the Civil Rights Movement, which is very well covered in the book by Preston A. Smith that talks about how black elites were actually compl- in the segregation that Ta-Nehisi Coates tries to say, blame Whitey because he did it by himself, which is not the case at all. Racial democracy in the black metropolis, housing policy in post-war Chicago by Preston right, A. Smith. Right.
1: Cedric second. Johnson, in uh, several episodes back, recommended that book. So if you folks don't have that, I have it myself. It's on the list. I've skimmed it already. The argument is solid and interesting. It's a, it's a it's an absolutely important history if you want to understand how to overcome, uh, you know, uh, some of these issues. Because as I talked about this with Cedric at length, and we don't have to go into it, but you know, there's this kind of, and we talked about it at the very opening of the show, there's this kind of like a romanticized, aestheticized. Uh, exoticized version of what the radical civil rights movement was and what it represented. And yeah, sure, there were some great slogans. There were some heroic figures, no doubt. Uh, But the actual lived legacy, the consequences of that period are something very, very different. And I think the left needs to uh, read up on that stuff to see how that played out so that we don't get played again. Uh, You know, we got conned. Uh, in that process. And, uh, you know, we, we don't want to get played again. So, uh, we're talking about reparations. Uh, hit me with that. Let's talk about Ta-Nehisi Coates, his argument, his position, um, in his, in, in the kind of like, uh, uh, what, what do you, what would you call his position? He's a petite, he's a petit bourgeois. A
0: African-American male with no class analysis within the black community who's trying to basically leverage white white guilt to get the fat back and biscuits to make black people a little bit better than they are in a capitalist society that will not improve their condition unless capitalism is altered in this country.
1: OK, I'm going to play devil's advocate, but but Pascal, but Pascal, listen, listen, listen. This is what they'll say. They, they always say it real smug like, too. So I'm trying to I'm trying to mimic this. Right. Listen, listen, listen. But What you don't understand is Ta-Nehisi Coates might not be perfect. He might not be extra revolutionary. But isn't it worthwhile that he has people talking about this? I mean, isn't he starting a discussion?
0: Well, well what good is a discussion that's going to go nowhere but replicate the
1: problem? <laughs> hey, there you go. Mic drop. <laughs> Mike drop. That's all that needs to be said. Right. I mean, that's, that's what I get most often is Adam. I, uh, you know, I agree with you, but you're talking about this a little too much. You know, you're really, you're really crapping on the people and, and, and they're doing the best they can. They have no, good intentions. Well they're
0: not doing the best they can. Charlie Easton's he kind of coach is the son of a black, of a, of a black Panther. He knows the he knows the crap that he's shoveling. You know, when, you know, this guy targeted in a targeted fashion took a dagger to Bernie Sanders and the whole project of socialism in America as if there was no such thing as Martin Luther King saying he's anti-capitalist or Malcolm X saying that socialism is a more effective uh, process for black people. Listen, there, there is an attempt by black elites, coach included, to make socialism thing like seem like it's some kind of white white liberal hippie project that is divorced from black politics. Socialism is something that is not alien to black politics, going back to the Colored Farmers Alliance, going back to the black socialism oh, yeah. communists of the early 20th century, going back to Lucy Parsons, going back to a number of figures, Du Bois, uh, 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 you know, all of these figures, Paul Robeson, who, uh, you know, there's a black radical tradition in this country. And I was really angered that we didn't have enough people who adhere to the black radical tradition like myself that is based on anti-capitalism, anti-imperialism, anti-racism, and anti-sexism. And that what Koch basically made it seem to his black and white readers is that that tradition is alien to what these Bernie Bros are fighting for because they won't talk about reparations. which even within the black community is something that is still a project that resurfaces every time the black adherent to it needs to get his racial, racial bona fides stamped by black people. Ruth Dixon has a very good statement about racial reparations. He said reparations is the policy that black politicians use when they're in trouble. Every time that they're in trouble and they're getting in problems, they say reparations as a means to you know rally the troops to get black people. Say so Yeah, we are owed a debt. We have a claim as descendants of slaves. And, and what all it does is situa- set up a situation where you're going to have a bunch of liberal elite Negroes, as Adolf does in his very crit- good critique of reparations, parceling out the fat bag and biscuits, and they're going to get the bigger cu- the bigger cut. And it's not going to change anything because, as I said in a video with Jared Ball, even if you give every black person in this country a million dollars, a billion dollars, with international finance capitalism, that is not going to change the racial restructuring in this country because that wealth is not going to be secured in a way that allows it to maintain long-term survival in the black community because it's still going to be racially outcast and looked upon as those as, as the as the exotic other who is to be suppressed because of their lack of ability to socially uh, ad- adhere to the needs of American capitalism. You have to. Sell up a situation where capitalism no longer, longer func- functions, and we have an economic order and paradigm that basically redistributes de- wealth, collective ownership of all resources, state as well as private, comprehensively cooperative economic building, and something that, den- d- that denies the ability of interest to generate wealth for the banks who are the parasitic factor in the economy in the first place. That's what my model is, because you always hear people say, well, if you don't want that capitalism, what's your model? Well, I have a model. I just gave it to you. Mm-hmm. Why can't we use it?
1: That sounds very simple, actually. I mean, you laid it out in a very complex and nuanced fashion. I don't mean to call it uh, simple minded, but at the heart of it, it's very simple. And I think a lot of people, a lot of the race managers in the country want to want to convince you that there's there's a mystical complexity to the whole thing. Right. And, 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 you know, I, I'm, I'm I'm a little bit critical of Kiangi Yamada Taylor's book on Black Lives Matter, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And we touched on a little bit of that in Cedric Johnson's uh, interview. Uh, I've talked about it elsewhere, and I'm going to have Adolph Reed on the show. He promised to come back on and do uh, a full-on critique and assessment of that book.
0: Well, I have the book. I haven't read it yet, so I'm not, not going to feel confident. I mean, I, as I told you in, in our earlier conversation, I've read— I, before uh, Kianga Ke- uh, got uh, really attached to the Black Lives Matter thing, I had read a lot of her writing in the in, in the uh, International Socialist Workers and some of it was even on Black and General Report. And I really liked it because it seemed that she had a very good class critique of black politics and the function of the black political class, which we call the black misleadership class. So I, I'm, I'll, I'll be sad to see her fall back into race-specific remedies in this Black Lives Matter book, which, I, which is, doesn't shock me because that's exactly what Black Lives Matter is going, where it's going to go. Black Lives Matter is nothing but the new politically correct identity politics version of a black misleadership class with better, with better sexual orientation politics. That's all it is.
1: Right, right, and I don't mean to denigrate because I know people might be screaming into their uh, smartphones or te- or uh, laptop screens right now and saying, "Well, you know, uh, that's not you're not being fair to that book." She really does paint a much more complex picture, and that's true. She does. She does talk about to an extent. There's a chapter on on what you call the black misleadership class. She does talk about the fact that that uh, within uh, you know the black demographic in America, uh, you have extreme wealth inequality for the top ten percent. Uh, of of the black community, uh, so she does talk about these things, and that's good, that's important. But it seems to me that her what what the way that that, that I, I came out of the Cedric Johnson interview, uh, thinking this through, is that talking about this black liberation struggle as 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 this sort of like inherently revolutionary and politically viable movement, whereas Cedric and others show quite persuasively a uh, uh, race has never provided a ready-made political constituency in the way that these folks claim that it
0: no, is. No, it's never had. It never had. No, not, not, not in the Civil Rights Movement, not in the Black Power Movement. What it did- Not in Haiti, not from in the Haiti. story that you laid out. Well, not in Haiti, even because the project was sabotaged by those who didn't want to adhere to it. But bottom, the bottom line is that when you have race-specific identitarian notions of remedies for an oppressed group of people, it always does something that happens in any national social structure. It creates a tier of elites who end up being able the brokers of the affairs of that subsection subaltern class of people to the benefit of the overall arching controllers of capitalism if you don't have any kind of international association of people of like minded class position challenging the capitalist order it's going to replicate that paradigm over and over again
1: so we've got about we've got about five minutes. I, I, I'll try to keep these around an hour. I, I feel like you and I could probably wrap on this for three hours, and I'd love it. But, but for the sake of my viewers, they'll start tuning out if I go much longer than an hour. So let's take the last five minutes here, and we've laid out the critique. It's scathing. It's uh, it's 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 uh, airtight. Uh, there's a lot more that could be said, but we'll have to leave it there. Let's let's spend five to ten minutes on the positive case. You have the microphone. You're talking to the broadly uh, millennial socialist left who comprise my audience. Apologies to the Gen Xers and boomers who tune in. Uh, But you've got the mic. Tell us the kind of orientation that we need to have. Uh, There are a lot of people flooding parties like Democratic Socialists of America, Socialist Alternative. There's a huge uh, cadre that's forming around like broadly Jacobin uh, left, social democratic politics. Let me tell you
0: why this is dating. You know what's tragic about this moment? Can I tell you what's tragic about it? For the first pers- for the first time in the history of the African American community in this country, black people are operating in a political space to the right of white progressives. To the right of white progressives.
1: That's that is that's scathing, and I see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it. Because I don't think I have the clout But I think you're right
0: you No I know what I'm mean? right And this is what happens To following this Neoliberal Obama Hillary Clinton model Of rendering our Black politics To a faction of The Democratic Party That's fundamentally Reactionary Was designed to Basically encapsulate The black community And destroy it If you want to call it A black community With policies from You know Three strikes you're out And the mass incarceration To the subprime mortgage crisis And everything else And this is where Black people like Joy Ann Reed are sending The black community no. To force their hopes on and The root and all these Other publications And all these other Black elite led you know, black misleadership class, petite bourgeois organizations, fraternities, sororities, the links, you know, uh, you know the, the national organization of Negro women, they are all foisting black, they, because they are the black misleadership class that misleads the black community into politics that is going to destroy black people, they are foisting black people into politics that work in a correct, a direct opposition to what black people need, which is a class-based challenge to capitalism to redistribute, redistribute wealth because black people are disproportionately poor. And anything that does not do that is basically just circle jerking.
1: Let's talk about public sector trade unions, uh, because that seems to be the thing that's left out of the equation so much. Obviously, there's a very twisted and and difficult legacy of unionism, trade unions in America. They've become, uh, you know, uh, uh, corporatized and anti-democratic and and all the rest of it. I've had Jane McAlevey on the show in in, in months past to talk about this and what we need to do about it. But it seems to me, you know, uh, if you want to talk about how to help real people, Real poor and working class people, you know, public sector trade unions are disproportionately uh, filled with uh, uh, women of color. And so uh, you know, it seems to me that's, that's one of the most important things So let's lay out a positive case What do we need to do? What, where are some of the areas that we need to work on to develop power?
0: Well, I'm a big advocate of unions I mean, first of all, black people are disproportionately The most unionized demographic in the United States A larger percentage of black people are unionized mm-hmm. Than white people in this country Unions are basically the key to stable economic development Stable income, stable, pe- stable pensions and health care and, and anybody who is black, who you see who you, and I've had black people say that Well, unions are racist I will make the argument if you want to use this quote unquote chic rhetoric of anti-blackness if you are anti-union you are anti-black because more black people per capita are involved in unions that's providing stable labor to black folk than there are black people in college. That is where the black community needs to focus on is having economic paradigms like unions that provide more equity in terms of uh, dollar for dollar what you get for your work and job security so public sector unions, private sector unions trying to basically fight for 15, trying to create a paradigm. I'm a, I'm a fan of universal basic income. I'm a fan of having a cooperative economic model where the public and workers cooperatives own a third of the actual shareholders of, of, of private corporations. Why can't we have one-third of all private corporations over $5 million in, in profit be one-third owned by the private originators of the business entity, one-third owned in the public trust for shares for citizens of the United States and workers of that company, and one-third owned by the government to make sure there's no abuse of power by that, by that corporation, with again a non- Interest-based, equity-based lending paradigm. Unless you go get a mortgage for hundred thousand dollars, instead of being a fixed interest rate that makes the bank a parasite, tell them that you're going to get a percentage of the increase in market value of the house when I sell the house. What's what's so impossible oh, right.
1: about that? These are what we you might call non-reformist reforms. They are reforms, right? We're not, you know, we're not storming the barricades, but yet they're the kind of reforms that lead us out of the the repressive logic of capital and the kind of way that the control of, of the elite, uh, you know, ruling class, uh, exerts on society today. Absolutely. Good stuff, man. Any, any final parting words about some of the emphasis, emphases that you would like to see on the left today?
0: No, I want I, I, to, 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 Joy Reed Ta-Nehisi coach and all those other Negroes who have a problem with class, black people talking about class. I have a very simple statement and I can say this as a Haitian and someone who lives as an African and within the African-American community in the United States, there is not a place in the world where you cannot find that black people from Haiti to Harlem have not been sold out by class. They're class traitors in the black community. And until black people realize that they have to confront their class traitors in the black community, they will never be free from white oppression.
1: <sighs> Pascal Robert, that is fire, man. I appreciate that final sentiment. Any parting words to my audience? What do you tell? So that that's kind of like instructions to say, you know, uh, 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 black, uh, militants and Marxists within the movement. What do you say to this kind of like, uh, unfortunately, uh, largely white, not certainly not exclusively white, uh, but, but far less racialized kind of professional managerial class that has that is that his, uh, radicalized under say Bernie Sanders and, and those types of folks.
0: Well, I mean, may, I, I, I would suggest to them to maintain a good class-based anti-capitalist paradigm, even though their their position as workers are as compradors for the system, working to the, to the detriment of the masses. But listen, man, I practiced law. I had a real estate title company. I went to an elite law school. I, you know, I was trained to be a comprador. You know, so I mean, I'm not. I, I, I can't act like I'm some guy sitting with a revolutionary, you know, you know, red flag with the with the with the with the with the hammer and sickle who doesn't understand that you got to feed your kids and, and feed your family, and that you got you know three hundred thousand dollars dollars in student loans. I know what that means. But that isn't. once you realize, when you actually get with the proletariat, and with the masses, and realize how much people are being cannibalized in this capitalist order right now, and that there is no way to maintain capitalism unless they go to some kind of global third world war situation and try to restart Keynesianism like they did in the World War II, that they're going to have to find a way to change this paradigm in a way that's more democratic and changes the equity situation where more people have access to wealth resources trickling down than trickling up.
1: Very well said. This is good stuff, man. I, You know, the one thing that I hope to contribute, and I've I've gotten this feedback from people, and I think what you've you've provided Pascal for myself and the audience is a language and a conceptual framework to identify these dynamics as they play out in real time in front of our very eyes. I think even if a lot of us are suspect of a lot of these issues that you raise, we don't really have the language and, and the expertise. Uh, to call it out for what it is and then try to work towards something more productive. So I think, you know, that's what I'm trying to provide and you've given us a really excellent framework. Uh, So thanks again, Pascal. I look forward to having you on the show again in the future uh, to talk about events as they come up. No problem. And that wraps my interview with Pascal Robert on the black Leadership class. Thanks again to Pascal for joining us many months ago. I really enjoyed that interview when it aired. And I learned a lot and it helped to frame exactly what I was trying to do when it came to the Anti-Essentialism series. So we are well underway here. This wraps Episode 3. I have several others coming in the next uh, you know, several days or so. Everybody look out for that. As I mentioned at the opening, we are currently between Season 1 and Season 2 of the Dead Pundit Society. I've got a new co-host. Her name is Amy. We're recording a lot of content right now. Looking forward to many more great long-form interviews that you've come to know and love on the Dead Pundit Society. We're going to be bringing a lot more content to our patrons very soon. So if you are not yet a member of the Dead Pundit Society, please consider going to www.patreon.com deadpundits. Subscribe for $5 or more and you'll get access to the full back catalog of B-sides and subscriber-only content. Support the new left agenda and keep this thing going. We need your help to do that. So, much more anti essentialism on the way. Everybody, look out for that. Until then, Dead Pundit, out. (laughs) Oh, this is you crazy, mother.